0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Hanukkah Boot Camp. So, Hanukkah Boot Camp is um, what we're doing in order to get ready for Hanukkah, to get ready for the holiday, as we as we do pretty much for every holiday. Um, it's always good to get in the in the spirit of the holiday, so this is a week before. Hanukkah begins next Thursday night. Hope you guys all have your menorahs ready and your... Uh, the oil and the candles and the gifts and the gelt and all the, and the latkes, we were speaking about latke recipes. So this is, um, this is the time of year to get started, to get ready for the holiday. And there's the physical preparations. And of course there's the spiritual preparations. So one of my uh, favorite jokes from back in the day was, and I'll tell you why it was, you'll see why. The joke is the plane lands in JFK, December 25th. The captain, you know, after the plane lands, Captain says, for all of you who are sitting with your seatbelts buckled, wishing you a Merry Xmas, right? For all of those walking in the aisles and talking, happy Chanukah. That's a pre-9-11 joke because after 9-11, of course, everyone's got to be seated with a the buckle. There's no fooling around. But if you remember flying beforehand, you know, back in the day, you know what I mean. So Chanukah is a very special holiday. Now we know that Hanukkah is not only special every year, as has been for the last few thousand years, but especially this year, Hanukkah takes on, I believe, an extra significance simply because there is, um, there is this, uh, you know, there is a, a correlation, I think, between Hanukkah and the Hanukkah story and what we are facing as a, as a people right now, which is the idea of um, those that wish to eliminate Jews and Judaism, Essentially, and we're 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 fighting a war. Not always is there a um, is there a war that's being fought, but certainly I mean there's always a spiritual that's being fought. Not always a physical war. And indeed this Hanukkah, we're amidst not only of the general spiritual war that's always being you know being uh, grappled with, but also a very a very real, very practical um, uh, physical war. So with that in mind, um, what I wanted to do is go through eight different lessons eight different Hanukkah kind of lessons. Um, you can call it one for each night, one for each light, um, and and that I think speak to the to the times that we're in and um, and speak to the theme of the holiday. So um, I wanna begin, and I'm gonna put these up online as well. I'm gonna share this, um, you guys have it in front of you, but I'm gonna share this online as well. So the first lesson, the first lesson, light one lesson one, is the following. A little light chases away a lot of darkness. So when it comes to darkness, when it comes to the nature of darkness, there's a major dispute amongst the, um, the philosophers. Is darkness a substance? Is it a thing? Or is darkness a lack of a thing, right? In other words, does darkness have its own energy? Or is darkness simply the absence of light? So I wanna, I wanna bring to your attention a teaching from Rabbeinu Bachya, or Bachaya, depending on how you pronounce it, two different ways of pronouncing it. Um, I have it here up on the screen. You guys have it in the booklet. Um, I put together the source sheet. Rabbeinu Bachya makes this comment on the book of Exodus, in the beginning of Exodus, where it goes through the ten plagues. Of course, plague number nine is the plague of darkness. So take a look at what Rabbeinu Bachya says. Um, I'm going to read the English. He says there are actually three kinds of darkness of which the Torah speaks in this portion. We have here the expressions, which translate to darkness will materialize, darkness will be tangible, and there was a thick darkness. So there's three expressions of darkness that are brought in the verse. Um, and he says, actually, these three descriptions of darkness correspond to three other terms for darkness we know from the Torah, which are alata, afela, and arafel. So again, there's three different, um, three different um, expressions of darkness: alata, af- afela, and arafel. So the alata, what was the alata? That was the kind of darkness experienced by Avram during the Covenant of the Pieces. Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. So to just explain that a little bit. So basically you had the bris ben habsarim, the Covenant of the Pieces. This is where um, uh, God tells Avram, Abraham, that his children are going to be slaves in a foreign land. Afterwards, they're going to leave with great wealth but there was a darkness that descended in that experience. The Torah Torah says that a darkness descended upon Avram, and God says to him, FYI, I love you, we're making a covenant, but it's not always going to be good. There will be a time, there will be very dark for your descendants. Okay, so that's one phrase, alata. Aphela is the kind of darkness which occurred in Egypt, which is the, the ninth plague. And Arafel is the kind of darkness which engulfed Moses on his ascent to Mount Sinai, it says in the verse, later on in Exodus, after, of course, the Exodus, that when Moses ascends Mount Sinai, there is a Raphael, there is a form of darkness. So Rabbein Abachiah says that in Torah, we have three types of darkness. There's alata, the dread that falls upon Avram when he hears about what's going to happen with his descendants being slaves in Egypt, when he gets the, the, the prophecy of, of Egyptian slavery. There is a- aphela, which is the darkness of the ninth plague, and arafel, which is the darkness that Moses encounters on the way up the mountain to-, to receive the Torah on Mount Sinai. The point of all this, the reason why I-, I cited this text, is for a very simple purpose, and that is because this text speaks to the idea that darkness is or has some tangibility. Again, there's a major, it's not only a Jewish philosophical uh, conversation. This is true in other philosophies as well. There's a big question, is darkness a creation? There's a thing or is it a lack of a thing, right? Is it that God created light and darkness or God creates light and the absence of light is darkness? This Rabbeinu Bachia and their other sources as well seem to indicate that darkness has tangibility Right, darkness will materialize, darkness will be tangible, there was a thick darkness, not just darkness, but a thick darkness that implies that darkness has a substance to it as well. And yet, and here's the big idea, whether you consider darkness to be the absence of light, or whether you consider darkness to have its own substance, right? either way, we know one thing, and that is when you, when you um, put in proximity the light to the darkness, the darkness can never overwhelm the light. In other words, if you walk into a dark room and you have a candle with you, it's not like it's a question. Maybe the candle is gonna illuminate the darkness or maybe the darkness is gonna snuff out the, the, the candle. Doesn't happen, right? As long as you have a fire, as long as you have a, a source of light, it will, illum- or, or a light bulb at, for, you know, for that matter, it will illuminate the darkness. That's how it always works. And so what we find here is something fascinating. The difference between darkness, the relation between darkness and light and fire and water is that fire could, fire and water, it, we're not sure who's gonna win that battle. I guess if you have enough water, it's your guarantee to extinguish the fire. But the truth is, if you have enough fire, you can evaporate the water. So each one can overwhelm the other, conceptually, potentially. But When it comes to light and darkness, darkness never prevails over light, at least in a physical way. If you, if you go down to your basement, and it's dark, and you hit the light switch, it's not like you're not sure what's gonna happen, unless the light bulb wasn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't replaced for a little while. I think we all have those light bulbs that are, uh, I'm thinking of, of my own light bulbs that need, need some replacing. But darkness never wins, never beats light, and the message for us is, when we encounter darkness, and again, I'm trying to connect all these details into not only general themes, and Hanukkah themes, and Jewish themes, and you know eight themes, but also to what's going on right now in the world, we know one thing, that darkness cannot be victorious over light. As long as we're shining light, we know that light will prevail. Maybe not immediately, maybe we don't see it immediately, but we know that darkness does not stand a chance. And so in our own lives, you know, we need to be light makers. It's, um, it's I don't know, I, I don't know if it's easier, but it's, we're sometimes tempted to go and, and, and wrestle with the darkness or you know point out the darkness and all of that, is helpful in its own way. But the most effective thing is to shine light, is to shine light and to to create more light in the world. And the more light we create, the less space the darkness has to operate. Okay, so all of that is lesson number one. Again, lesson one is this, right? A little light chases away a lot of darkness. Now, I wanna get into the second lesson. We have eight lessons tonight and we don't have that much time. We have about 45 minutes left. So we have eight lessons, we have seven lessons left. The second lesson is you are a lamp, now go shine. You are a lamp, go shine. What does that mean? So this insight is actually coming from a very mysterious source, which is the Zohar, the Book of Kabbalah. And if you take a look, turn to the second page of the the handout that I prepared, and I'll scroll here online for everyone joining online. So the quote that, that we're gonna look at is from the book of Tanya, uh, chapter 35, where he quotes from the Zohar. Now the Zohar tells a story or tells a, uh, um, relates what happens with this fellow named the Yunuka. What's the Yunuka? So let me give you a little bit of background. The Yunuka was a child prodigy, was a child who was somehow blessed with divine insight and Kabbalistic insight. And so the Yunuka is someone who's quoting the Zohar at, at a few, in a few places, you know, espousing mystical insight. So take a look at this quote from Tanya. To quote by way of preface, the comment of the Yenuka quoted in Zohar Parsha Balak on the verse, the wise man's eyes are in his head. So let me explain. There's a quote that says, Chacham enav berosho. The wise person's eyes are in his head. And the yunuka asked the rhetorical question, Well, where else are a man's eyes? It says, the wise man's eyes are in his head. And what about the not wise man? Where are his eyes also in his head? What does that mean? He says, no, the interpretation of the verse certainly is as follows. Listen to this. We have learned that a man must not walk four cubits bareheaded. The reason is that the Shekhinah, the divine presence, rests on his head. And a wise man's eyes and everything he possesses are, quote, in his head i.e. in him who rests and abides above his head. And so let me, let me pause for a moment. The Yenuka, who's this kind of like this child, prodigy, oracle, prophet, you know, wise, kabbalistic, you know, uh, medium or whatever. So he says like this, what is the meaning of the Pasuk, of the verse that says, or not, not a verse, but the statement that says, the chacham, the wise person, his eyes are in his head. It means that the wise person His eyes, he's always looking at his head. What's his head? His head, i.e., the fact that God resides above his head. Let's continue. And if his eyes are there, in other words, if his eyes, if he's paying attention to the divine spirit that rests upon him, then he must know that the light which shines above his head needs oil. For the body of a man is a wick. Listen to this, right? So again, there's a light shining above his head. But it needs oil. Why? For the body of a man is a wick, and the light is kindled above it. And King Solomon cried, saying, Let there be no lack of oil above your head. For the light on a man's head must have oil, meaning good deeds. And this is the meaning of the phrase, The wise man's eyes are in his head. The quotation ends here. That's the end of the Enochah statement. What is going on here? It's very enigmatic, very mystical, very esoteric. I'll share with you a simple explanation. Kabbalah teaches that the human being, you and I, are compared to a lamp. What's the comparison? A lamp is composed of three elements. Well, I mean four, you have the lamp itself, the actual physical, you know, okay, the vessel. But forget the vessel for a second. The lamp is composed of three parts. You have the oil, the wick, and the flame. Oil, wick, flame. If anyone is missing, you don't have the fire. Right? So if you have an oil and a wick, but you didn't light it, garnished. If you have a wick and fire, it's gonna burn right out. If you have a wick and oil, sorry, if you have fire and oil, it's also not gonna be sustainable. So the the way that the way that you get the light that you want is with three items: the oil, the wick, and the flame. And so Kabbalah teaches that the human being also has these three elements. What are they? So here we go. The wick is the body. The flame is the soul. And the oil are good deeds, mitzvot. And you need all three elements to bring light into the world. Without without these three elements, it's not going to work. In other words, if you just have a soul in a body, but not doing good deeds, there's no light. If you have just the existence of a good deed, but you don't have a wick, you don't have a body that's doing it, again, there's no light. You need all three elements. Um, you, need the, you need the mitzvah. You need the, 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 the body that can physically do the mitzvah. And then you need, of course, the soul that's providing the inspiration and the energy and the passion to actually go ahead and perform the mitzvah. But all three are important. And so the, the second lesson that we're sharing, again, lesson one is a little light chases away a lot of darkness. The second lesson is if it, if we want to shine, how do we shine? By being a lamp. And what's a lamp? A lamp has three components. We have to have an active soul. We have to have, it, we have, to have an active body. And we have to activate Mitzvot. Without those three elements, we're not actually, at least on a spiritual level, we're not shining the way it is that we are called upon to shine. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. All right? Good. Um, so that's, this is, uh, this, the, 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 these are the three important elements that, comprise, that compose a lamp and that compose, that make up a human being who is shining. Now, lesson number three. Lesson three. As we move through the eight lessons. Okay, the third lesson is go higher and higher and then don't ever be satisfied. Okay, and this is a reference to how we light the menorah. One candle, two candles, three candles, four candles, always going higher. Now, where does this idea come from? The truth is, it's the subject, as you may know, of a debate in the Talmud. The Talmud has a major debate about how we observe the mitzvah of the menorah and Hanukkah. The truth is, We operate based on one opinion, the opinion of the Academy of Hillel, but the Academy of Shammai has a completely different take on this. So let's look inside. I I literally put together the sheet so that we can see the sources um, from the original. Um, Okay, this is coming from Tractate Shabbat 21B. Now, what is Tractate Shabbat? Tractate Shabbat is the Talmudic book that deals with the laws of Shabbat, of Shabbos tells you about the work that we do, that we don't do, all that stuff. There is no track date for Hanukkah. It's the only Jewish holiday, I think, that doesn't have a track date. Rosh Hashanah has a track date. Yom Kippur has a track date. Sukkot has a track date. Purim has a track date, it's called Megillah. Pesach has a track date, Passover. Shavuot doesn't have a track date, but I mean the whole thing is Torah, so I mean it's, it's kind of covered. The only major holiday, I, th- I guess major, whatever, holiday that is um, that is absent from its own tractate is Chanukah. There is no tractate Hanukkah. However, the conversation about Hanukkah is mixed, not mixed in, but it's positioned inside, <clears throat> excuse me, inside the tractate <coughs> of Shabbat. <coughs> so in tractate Shabbat, where it deals with the lighting of the Shabbat candles. So it segues from the Shabbat candles to the Hanukkah candles. So that's where you have the conversation about Hanukkah. So that's a a bit of background. So now let's look at it inside. So here we go. The sages taught in a b'rita, says the Talmud. The basic mitzvah of Hanukkah is each day to have a light kindled by a person, that of the household, from self and his household. So again, let's start here. The Talmud says that if you want to observe Hanukkah and you want to light the menorah or light the Hanukkiah, here's what you do. You take one candle each night for the whole house. Not for every person in the household. You light one candle. Imagine you have a candlestick. You take a candlestick. You put a candle inside. You light it. Mazel tov. Do that every night. You don't add anything. One candle per household per night. Okay. That's the basic mitzvah. And the Mahadran, back inside, and the Mahadran. Mahadran means those who are meticulous in the performance of mitzvot. They kindle a light for each and every one in the household, which means that if you have two people in, in, in the house, right, you would light two candles every night. Two, 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 two every single night. If you have a family of four, like four candles. The first night, four, the second night, four, the third night, four. You light the number of people in your household every single night. By the way, this was a great way. If you were a census taker in ancient Israel, this was great. You didn't have to send out, you didn't have to mail all of those reminders. You just walked around. You looked at the, I'm kidding. Right, but you can, right, so you light one candle per, uh, per household, and that's a per member of the household, and that's it. You're good every night. That's the mahadron. So again, the basic level is one per household. Mahadron, if you want to go a little bit, you know, more beautiful for the mitzvah, one per person. The third level and the mahadrin, mina mahadrin, which means those who are even more meticulous, like the extra, the extra, you know, we, I guess we would call it like the ultra-orthodox, whatever, right? Adjust the number of lights daily. In other words, the, the, the number of lights that you're kindling changes by the day. How does it change? Here's the dispute. Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disagree as to the nature of that adjustment. Beit Shammai say, the Academy of Shammai says, on the first day, one kindles eight lights. And from there on, gradually decreases the number of lights until on the last day of Hanukkah, he lights one light. So again, night one of Hanukkah, next Thursday night, Beit Shammai would have said, you have a eight. The next night, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. That's one opinion. And Beit Hillel says, or say the Academy says, on the first day one kindles one light, and from there on gradually increases the number of lights until on the last day he kindles eight lights. So Beit Hill says no. The first night you light one, second light two, second night two, third light three, four, five, and that's of course what we do. Right? But there's a major dispute because Beit Shame says eight, seven, six descending order. Beit Hill says one, two, three, four, ascending order. Now, the question is, what is the rationale for this dispute? What, they just decided, they just flipped a coin? Okay, you go up, I go down. Like, what, what's the, so turn the page, please, to the next page. And here we have the Talmud explaining the rationale for the dispute. Ula said, there were two Amarayim in the West. Let me explain this. Um, in the Talmud, you have Tanayim and Amarayim. Atana and Amora, what are the Tanaim and Amoraim? Basically names for sages that lived in different eras. The earlier era was the era of the Tanaim. The latter era was the era of the Amoraim. So the authors of the Mishnah were Tanaim. The authors of the Talmud that came a few hundred years later were Amoraim. So the Talmud quotes the Mishnah or the B'rita that, that, that has in it the Tanaim of Hillel and Shammai or, and their academies. And now that the, the Talmud says... There were two Amoraim, two latter, I was going to say latter-day sages, but that sounds almost like something else. Anyway, there were two Amoraim in the west, Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, who disagreed with regard to this this dispute. Rabbi Yossi bar Avin and Rabbi Yossi bar Zveda. Okay, here we go. One says, and understand how Talmudic this is. We have a debate between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, and there's a debate about what they're debating. You with me on this? There's two different understandings of why they were debating. <laughs> they, we can't even agree on why they were disagreeing. We're dis, there's a disagreement about that disagreement. It's wild. It's very, uh, very Talmudic. Very meta-Talmudic. Okay, so one said that the reason for Beit Shami's opinion is that the number of lights corresponds to the incoming days, i.e. the future. So on the first day, eight days remain in Hanukkah. So imagine. Very simple. A week from tonight. Ah, well, let's just make it easier. Let's say Hanukkah started tonight. Let's, for argument's sake. So, right now, how many more days do we have? Eight days. I mean, it's, it's like the, the beginning of the night, of the first night. You have now eight days that are left. Great, light eight. The second night, how many days do you have left? Seven. Great, light seven. Six, five, four. So, you're looking at the amount of days that you have left. That's why you start with eight and you go down. Um, it's kind of like um, when you're driving your car and your gas, right you have that little gas gauge and it's divided into eight parts, right You have full tank, an eighth of a tank or whatever you have like it's divided into, it's right into, into eight little little segments. You start off full and then as you drive, so you have eight you have eight eighths, seven eighths. Right, So think about when they, when they lit the, the, the oil that lasted for eight nights. Same thing. It started off full, and then it slowly went down. So you start off with full capacity. We have eight days of miracle left, seven days of miracle left, six days left, five, four, three, two, one, the last night of Hanukkah, which is, you know, it's going to burn for one more day. You light the last one, and it's over. That is Beit Shammai's logic, which sounds interesting, sounds compelling. Um, what about Beit Hillel? Here we go. Let's continue inside the Talmud. The reason for Beit Hill's opinion is that the number of lights corresponds to the outgoing days. What does that mean? Let's continue inside. Each day the number of lights corresponds to the number of the days of Hanukkah that were already observed. Now, that term already observed is a little bit of a misnomer. Imagine again if tonight is the first night of Hanukkah. So Beit Hill would say we're not looking at how many days are left, but how many days we're in. So at the the onset of Hanukkah, we're in day one, light one candle. The next night, we're already in day two, you light two. We're in day three, you light three. So he goes, he looks at incoming days. Well, I don't know the right way to say it. He looks at um, the days that you have in front of you. And Beit Shammai, that we said before, he looks at the days that you have, um, the days that, uh, that are left, as it were. That's one one angle of understanding the machloka, the dispute. Um, Okay, let's put that aside. Let's continue inside the middle of that big paragraph. And one said that the reason for Beit Shami's opinion, again, we have two opinions as to what they were arguing about. This is the second. So one said that the reason for Beit Shami's opinion is that the number of lights corresponds to the bulls of the festival of Sukkot. Now, when it comes to the holiday of Sukkot, the Torah tells us that they, that, that, that the Jewish people were to bring and offer uh, various, uh, varying numbers of bulls every single day, and the number of the animals were to, meant to decrease each and every day. So 13 were sacrificed on the first day, and each succeeding day, one fewer was sacrificed. So again, on Sukkot, day one, you sacrifice 13 bulls. Day two, 12. Day three, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7. That's how they went down every day. The number of sacrifices of bulls went down each day. Why? The Torah says so. Numbers chapter 29. So so Shammai says, just like the bulls decrease, so too the Hanukkah lights also go decreasing. 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And that's how you should light it. And what about Beit Hillel? The reason for Beit Hill's opinion is that the number of lights is based on the principle one elevates to a higher level in matters of sanctity and does not downgrade. Therefore, if the objective is to have the number of lights correspond to the number of days, there's no alternative to increasing their number with the passing of each day. Basically, he says, Beit Hill says, at the end of the day, if you have a choice, look, if, the, if God says... Uh, sacrifice the bulls in decreasing order. You do that. But if we, if the, Hanukkah was a rabbinic holiday, if the rabbis are coming up with a holiday, then it makes sense that what we're going to do is we're going to always add more light. We're not going to go down. We're not going to start off uh, with eight lights and go down. We're going to increase each and every day in the matter in, in in matters of positivity. We don't we 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 upgrade. We don't downgrade. That's the rule of thumb. And so this becomes a lesson for us. Oh, good question. Good question. Right, because Beit Shammai is compelling. We have a rule, typically. A typical rule, with some exceptions. But the rule is, when you have a debate between Shammai and Hillel, we rule like like Hillel. Um, There are many reasons for this. The most practical reason is because when they voted, Beit Hillel, the Academy of Hillel, they had more people. Straight up. The majority sided with that academy of thinking there are some very few examples of the hundreds of debates and when you look through the talmud they literally have hundreds and hundreds of debates there's a like a handful maybe a dozen maybe a little bit more than a dozen where the ruling is like Beit Shammai i will tell you one other interesting little um tidbit it says when Mashiach comes we're going to rule like Beit Shammai I don't know. I guess our uh, Yod are going to be. You know, we're going to have to, you know, change the way we do things. But it says when Moshiach comes, we'll uh, we'll paskin. We'll uh, we'll we'll rule in accordance with with Beit Shammai. But typically, typically we go with with Beit Hillel. So in this case, also, what's I also find something interesting about this. Um, It's it's very rare. Sorry, it's very rare to find a mitzvah that everybody goes all in to the most. I don't know what the right word would be extreme or to the most um uh scrupulous way of, obs- of of observing it. When it comes to mitzvot, usually people, you know, there's 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 varying degrees. With chanukah, I don't know anyone who just lights one candle f- for their household each night. No one does that. Everyone has a hanukkiyah with eight slots with the candles and you put it in. I mean not I look not everyone does it every night, but if you're doing it, you're typically doing it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and that is called in the Talmud Mahadrin Min Mahadrin, like the best of the best. For some reason, Chanukah is blessed that everyone goes for the gold. It's amazing. It's a nice. It's a nice thing that that Chanukah, for whatever reason, has the uh, the observance in such a such a beautiful way. Oh, so what's the third lesson? So circling back to, to this sheet, I don't have it up on the, on the screen guys, but this sheet, right? Lesson three, uh, light three, lesson three, go higher and higher and then don't ever be satisfied. It's a, me- it's a lesson in life on two levels. Number one, somebody might look at their own life and say, I find myself in a dark place. I find myself in a not, not such a good place. I feel despair, I feel I feel down, etc. So the message here is no matter where you are, you can always climb up. There's always a step where you can go up. Don't despair that you're, you know, you're at level one. Tomorrow you can be at level two, then level three, level four. You can always ascend. Conversely, someone who feels like they're so accomplished, you know how much Torah I've studied, how many mitzvot I've done, and you know, I'm such a good person. To that person as well, we say, wherever you are. Then always go up, never go down, and never become complacent. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I was going to add something to it, but we have to move on. The important point here is, just like the Chanukiah, the, the, the ideal in life is to keep on climbing and not to uh, recede or, uh, or um, you know, re, re, retrace our footsteps, move forward, don't move back. All right, next. Light four, lesson four, public displays of light. I saw something fascinating on CNN today, cnn.com. There was a headline that asked the question, will you be lighting your menorah in the window this year? And I clicked on it. And it said, given all the anti-Semitism, will you be lighting the menorah in your window this year or not? And then it's, I've never seen this before on the website. And said let us know. call this number and leave a message and let us know. I'm like, wow, of all the things to create an interactive voicemail system, the question is about Hanukkah and the menorah as a Jew living in 2023 you know November almost December 2023, will you be lighting your menorah in the window? I, that literally I saw it a few hours ago so um, of course, the question is predicated on the fact that, you're, that the custom is to light in the window. But you know, is that do is are, are Jews afraid? Okay, fine. Where does it come from? The, the 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 custom to light in the window. Take a look. I have it right here from the Talmud. Um, here we go. Bottom of that page. For, again, tractate Shabbat. Same same vicinity of the previous piece. The sages taught in a Take a look. It is a mitzvah to place the Chanukah lamp at the entrance to one's house on the outside. Pesach beto mibachutz. The entrance of the house on the outside so that all can see it. So who has been in Israel on Chanukah? Have you guys been to Israel on Chanukah? My mother's raising her hand. Yep, I know that for sure that you've been there, right? After all, I was born there, so you were definitely there. they have little, right, and correct me if I'm wrong, they have little boxes, right, glass boxes that you they put the Hanukkiah outside right by the door, and you light it, and it's uh, it's like weatherproof um, for rain and, uh, and wind, and it's outside, and that's where it burns, outside. In the diaspora, we typically don't do that. Why? Probably because of safety stuff. You know, we don't want to... Yeah. But in the window, it's it's we it's still it's still inside the house. It's by the window, so others can see it. Okay. Now take a look at the next piece. Here's where the window comes in. If he lived upstairs, in other words, it's interesting. Interesting scenario. So if you own the downstairs, so then it's your door that's downstairs. What if you own the upstairs? So then it's not really your door. I mean, I guess you have to get in somehow. Whatever. But like, so where do you put your menorah? So look what it says. If he lived upstairs, he places it at the window adjacent to the public domain, the window overlooking the street. And in times of danger, look what it says here on the next page. And in times of danger, when the Gentiles issued decrees to prohibit kindling lights, he places it on the table and that is sufficient to fulfill his obligation. Put it inside your house. Hence the CNN CNN poll. Do you consider this to be a time of danger that you have to move it inside? Or are you going to go all gung-ho by the window? Literally saw that a few... It's probably still up on the homepage. Okay, so here's what I want to say about this. I don't know of any other mitzvah that's associated with the street. It doesn't say when you eat matzah on Passover... Make sure to do it outside. doesn't say that. Or at least by the window. No. Um, when you read the Torah in synagogue, make sure to open up the door and chant it so that everyone can hear. No, it doesn't say that. Um, I'm trying to think of other mitzvot. Even lighting, lighting Shabbat candles. Friday night. We don't light it by the window. The one mitzvah that I know of, the one mitzvah, that is meant part of the obligations to do it facing the street. Is it's Hanukkah. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. It's very unique and it's, it's wild. And I think the message, at least the message that I want to share tonight, is lesson four public displays of light. We live in a world where darkness and those that perpetrate acts of darkness. Are not satisfied with doing so quietly, but they wish to make a lot of publicity. Let's just let me speak very clearly. Hamas videoed. They sent the terrorists that came in and massacred fourteen hundred Jews in their homes and in in, in, in Israel. They had cameras, GoPro cameras. They were videoing it to create videos to then share it. In other words, they weren't satisfied with the, the horrors of the, of the murders themselves, but they wish to also publicize it. And so I think this is exactly what the Hanukkiyot, facing the window or outside, is meant, to, is meant to do. The message is, if evil seeks to go public, if, if those that perpetrate evil seek to publicize it and make a lot of noise and, and go big, then those of us, we, who create light, need to do the same thing. I think for too long we've been, we, we've associated, I don't mean we, literally we, but I mean we, the general we. I think for too long we have thought that, you know, when we do a good deed, part of a good deed is, is to do it quietly, right, modestly. And maybe at a time, maybe in certain times in history, maybe that was correct. Like, if I give tzedakah, let me give it anonymously. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want so much attention. But I think we live in a time when, because here's the problem if goodness doesn't grab attention, then you're leaving a vacuum of attention. And then who grabs attention? Negativity. So I think we live in a time when we have to really take this, this message of Hanukkah, this message of take your light and shine it everywhere for everyone to see and make sure the good deeds that we do are not done quietly, but done with some noise. And that means that you display your Judaism. Display your Judaism, right. Be proudly Jewish, right. When you do a mitzvah, like that's why Chabad, that's why the Rebbe initiated the public menorah lightings. Like one could ask, what's the point? You want to light a menorah? Light it in your house. Like Jews have been doing free. You have to go to City Hall or to, you know, to the, to the square of town, ta- the main center of town. And like, I grew up in Pittsburgh. And I know, again, I'll just reference my mother, who's, hi, mom, who's here. So I, I, there was a, the, the Allegheny County versus Chabad. Was it versus Chabad? That went to the Supreme Court in the late, I think, late 1980s where Chabad wanted to light the menorah, and the county, Allegheny County, you know, Pittsburgh, the government said, you can't, it's a religious display, separation of church and state. And um, maybe it was Chabad versus Allegheny County, I don't know who, who sued who, but basically, uh, not sued, who took the other to court, um, basically the argument was that uh, there was a holiday display, you know, um, of, of whatever it was in, 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 on, on city property, and so, so they said. Uh, you know, so the argument was that the, khana, the, the menorah should be there. It went to the Supreme Court, and you know what? Chabad won. They won the not Lewin was the was the lawyer, the, the federal, you know, the federal lawyer that that took the case. He won the case. It set a precedent for menorahs in public in public spaces, and um, and the and it's interesting because if you read the decision, the different judges that voted yes to the menorah actually gave different rationales. One of the rationales was that at this point, the menorah is not a religious symbol. One of the judges actually said, it's not a religious symbol. I think Chabad's like, whatever, like we'll take whatever, as long as we can do, put it up. But really, some of the, one of the rationales was, oh, it's not a religious symbol. <laughs> yeah, as if a rabbi would ever say that. It's become, it's become seasonal. It's, it's transcended you know uh, a religion. And that wouldn't be our argument, but hey, whatever works, if it works, it works. The point of this is that um, Adrian, to your point, is to, go, to be proudly Jewish, to go big on the good deeds, and to not, to not try to hide. This is about public displays of light, public displays of Judaism, to be proud and to be, to be bold with it. Okay, lesson five. All right, we're, at, we're past the halfway point, lesson five. Oh, this is so beautiful. Lesson five is called focus. What do I mean by that? Um, What's the difference between a Havdalah candle and a Hanukkah light? The answer is, help me out here. Havdalah has a lot of wicks. Good. Havdalah has a lot of wicks, right? And the Hanukkah only has to have one. So take a look. I quoted another piece from the Talmud. Take a look at this one. This is very interesting. Um, okay, the, the, the part that I want to address is the second half of this reading, but I'm going to do the whole thing. Rabbi Yitzhak Baradifa said, that Ravunah said, okay, lighting an oil lamp, That you guys have it? Yeah. Shabbat 23b2. Okay. All the texts look the same. I actually tried to number them, but it didn't come out in the printout. Okay. Rabbi Yitzhak Baradifah said, that Ravunah said, lighting an oil lamp that has two spouts, one, sorry, with one wick placed in each of the spouts is considered To have fulfilled the obligation of kindling the Chanukah light for two people. Imagine. Imagine you have a vessel with oil in it. And then you have, let's say, a cover that has two spouts for the wicks to go in. And imagine it's day one, night one. What if I want a light and you want a light? Can we use the same lamp? Multitasking. I'll take this one, you take that one. Done. So he says it's fine, it's kosher. You can do that. Similarly, Rava said, one who filled a bowl with oil and placed wicks all around it, if he overturned a vessel on top of it, it is considered to have fulfilled the obligation of lighting the Chanukah light for several people corresponding to the number of wicks. Why? Because by overturning a vessel atop the bowl, each wick appears to be burning independently. My understanding of this is when you're overturning the vessel, it's like you're covering you're covering the oil, and you're allowing the wicks to come, I guess, through the cover in, in various spots. So it looks like it's separate. However, let's continue. If one did not overturn a vessel on top of it, he thereby made it appear like a type of bonfire. From afar, the light from all the flames appeared to be a single flame, and it is not even considered to fulfill the obligation of lighting the Hanukkah light even for one person, because the mitzvah is specifically to light a flame and not a bonfire. Unlike the, unlike the Havdalah candle, that must have more than one wick. If you do Havdalah with the candle, you have to have more than one wick. It needs to be a bonfire, not really a bonfire, but like more than one wick. As in, by contrast, the Hanukkah lights are not allowed to have more than one wick. And if you have a vessel with more than one wick, and you want to have two people fulfill the obligation, you have to really be very clear in physically differentiating the two wicks from each other. Otherwise, it's a bonfire, and it's not kosher. Not even one person gets the mitzvah because it's a bonfire. Good. What's the message? To me, the message is as follows. You know, there's a there's the myth of multitasking, and that is that you know, we can do a lot of things at the same time and do them effectively. And I know, I know the, the adage that says that women can multitask, men can't, you know, it's like more of a challenge for guys. I guess I'll speak from a guy's perspective. I find with multitasking, you know, it's, it's hard to do whatever you're doing correctly if you're juggling a bunch of things at the same time. And I've seen this also in, uh, in, in modern... Um, time management uh, training and books that say, take one task at a time, do it fully, complete it, and move on to the next one. If you're trying to do two things at the same time, you're not gonna do it effectively. So I think this is the message. The message is one wick at a time. Don't mix two wicks together. If you mix two wicks together, it creates a bonfire, a balagan, and, and it's, not, it's not kosher, it's not, gonna get, it's not gonna get the job done. What we need to do is one wick at one time, to um, to keep it to keep everything, you know, in the in the it, it, um, separated and in in a good place. Okay, so that is that is the idea of the um, of the of the wick. It's about focus. I'll tell you a story, a great story. It was probably in the nineteen seventies in Brooklyn, New York, at the headquarters of Chabad, seven seventy Eastern Parkway, big synagogue over there. And it was after one of the holidays where a lot of Israelis had come in to celebrate the holiday in New York at Chabad headquarters. And as a farewell, the Rebbe was fabrenging, he was speaking and addressing the crowd, but here was the problem. Everyone had an LL flight that night. And everyone at the fabrengen, it was in the afternoon, they were all checking their watches, like checking the clock, like, uh, how long is this gonna go? Cause we gotta finish packing, head to JFK and bounce. The Rebbe noticed this, obviously, and the Rebbe smiled and he said the following. He said, I'll tell you a story. In the, he, he tells a story, this is a story in a story. He says, years ago, I, we were in Russia, right, he was in Russia, his father-in-law was, was a, the Rebbe then, you know, the previous Rebbe, and he says, um, my father-in-law had a very important meeting in Moscow, like a, for, on behalf of the Jewish people, like a very important situation. And he had to leave to the train station about you know in, in within fifteen minutes. I walk into my father-in-law's office. He says, and he's sitting there, writing something, reading something, as if nothing like no like no concern in the world, like just as if he's not about to go onto the train. So I said to him, like, how can you be so focused when you have this big big trip coming up? He said, I want to tell you what it means to have Hatzlacha zman, success in time. Successful time management means that whatever you're doing, you do 100% with 100% of your attention. If, if, while you're doing, if while you're doing this work, you're thinking about the train that you're not yet on, then you're living in between two worlds. You're here, but your head is over there, and therefore you're not here and you're not there, and you're nowhere. Success in time means that whatever you're doing, you're attentive, you're focused, and you're 100% present. And so the Rebbe said, at, so fast forwarding back to the 1970s Fabrenian, with all the people in Israel, from Israel, who were eyeing their watches and the clock when, when they have to leave, the Rebbe said, we'll conclude the Fabrenian soon, but you should know if you're here, you might as well be here. Because if you're here and thinking about the airport, then you're not at the airport, and you're not here, you're nowhere. So the idea is to focus one wick at one time. Next, lesson number six. All right, we're getting close. Lesson number six, shine locally. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's take a look at the next piece of Talmud. Okay, the next piece of Talmud says the following. With regard, uh, one second, with regard to the opinion. Oh, you know what, I wanna, I wanna fast forward. Um, skip to the next page. If you don't mind, please turn over the next page. Uh, look at the top line. The mitzvah, the end of the, end of the top line. The mitzvah of kindling the Hanukkah lights is from sunset until traffic in the marketplace ceases. And that's all we need. All we need is that piece. When is the window, all puns intended, right? When is the window? What's the window for lighting the menorah, the Chanukah? From sunset until no one's around. Outside, because if no one's around outside, then the whole point of the mitzvah is that other people should see it. So if it's too late, then it's, uh, it becomes problematic. So um, so the mitzvah is from sunset. So you have to, so the mitzvah begins when it gets dark. Where? Where you are. Not, not some other time zone. You don't light it when it's dark in, uh, in, in Israel or when it gets dark in LA. You light it, Atlant- if you're in Atlanta, you do Atlanta time. I think there's a powerful message, and that is shine locally. In life, we are called upon to shine light, to improve the areas of darkness that we have, the areas of challenge that we face. It's easy to fix someone else's problems. It's harder to fix our own. It's easy to say, oh, this is what's wrong with you, and I, I can tell you how to fix it. This is what's wrong with you, and here's, here's what you need to do about that. It's harder to be self-aware and self-reflective and think about, well, what is it that I need to work on? It's easy to find the errors, the darkness, the areas of repair in someone else. It's even easy to find solutions for someone else's problems. The hard thing is to identify our own challenges and work toward those solutions. That's why they're our challenges, right? Because they're the hard ones. It's again, it's easy to live someone else's life, harder to live our own. Shine locally means when we're lighting the menorah, when we're lighting the Chanukah, we do so in our locale, in our space. When it's dark here, not when it's dark there. We don't, look, we don't point fingers. We light where we are, and internally we do the same thing. We light where we are. Next. All right, we have a few minutes left. Majority, lesson seven, light seven, lesson seven. The majority doesn't always rule. There's a famous line in our prayers in the, the Al-Hanisim, the Al-Hanisim prayer that we recite in the Amidah and in the Grace After Meals throughout Hanukkah. We say the famous line, I have it here um, on the bottom of the page, you delivered, the. that's right in the middle of that paragraph, one, two, three, four, five, six lines down in that paragraph where it says on Chanukah, you delivered the mighty into the hands of the weak and the many into the hands of the few. Right, You delivered the many into the hands of the few. What does that mean? It means that on a very practical level, there were more Greeks than Jews, and still Hashem, God Almighty, delivered the many into the hands of the few and allowed for us to be victorious over the majority. The lesson for us is, just because we're in the minority doesn't mean we're wrong. Just because there's more people that shout and scream at us doesn't mean that they're right. It's a very important lesson. I think it's easy for a young Jew today in 2023 on campus, which I'm not in that situation, but I can imagine it would be very easy for a Jew on tw- to say, if everybody believes that we're wrong, we must be wrong. If everybody is shouting at Jews, if everyone's saying that we're Horrible and horrific, and you know, murderers and colonial like if, if that's if everyone says it, they must be right. If we always went like that, then we wouldn't have the story of Hanukkah, we wouldn't be here. God delivered the many into the hands of the few. The few the few can be right. Just because there's many doesn't mean the many are right. Um, there's a line. It feels like the whole world is again. That's them. and that's my point. And but just because of that doesn't mean that we're wrong. Because a person might think, well, can everybody be wrong? The answer is, yeah, yes, everyone could be wrong. <laughs> There's a line, and I don't know where it comes from. What's popular is not always right, and what's right is not always popular. And I think that's the guiding line over here. You know, when, when, when you know there are studies that have been done, it's a great study, I don't remember the details, but I remember the, the, the overall point. They took, they, they brought a person in to a room, and they asked them a question, they asked, uh, there were a bunch of other people. Everyone else was in on the study, only this one person wasn't. Okay, so everybody else was, was in, on the, uh, in on the ruse, except for one guy. And there was a researcher who's showing them something and asking them que- whatever, asking questions, and it's, it was almost like, like a very obvious question. And he goes around the room, and they're all, again, they're all in on it. And most of them say, maybe it's like a multiple choice question, and most of them are choosing the wrong answer. Wrong answer, wrong answer, wrong answer. They had like one or two of the paid actors doing you know, the correct answer, but most of them did the wrong answer. Then they get to this guy, who doesn't know what's going on here. And he sides with the majority. There's a lot of, I know I'm not stating this. I, it's, it's, several studies have been done on this. I know I'm not articulating it well. The point is, it's very easy to fall into the trap that if everyone else is saying something, I might as well go along for a few reasons. Number one, you question your, yourself. Can I be right if everyone else is saying it? How, how does that make sense? Number two, you don't want to stand out in a crowd or against the crowd. That feels scary. So there are many reasons why to be a Jew on campus today is very dangerous and scary. There's a reason why, you know, to be a Jew in the world can feel a little threatening. It's because it feels like the tides have turned and, and people are against the Jewish people. And I think what's very important from the story of Hanukkah is the, 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 the Maccabees were, were the minority. The Greek armies, I mean, when you look at the history, the, Greeks, the, Greek, the Syrian Greek armies, they sent incredible amounts of, of troops. And how, how many were the Maccabees? I mean, there weren't that many Jews that were fighting. And yet, a miracle happened. And the point of this is, just because we're in the minority doesn't mean we should give up hope. Don't fold. Don't give up. The majority doesn't always rule. And the last lesson. The last lesson that I want to share with you, Light 8, Lesson 8. I actually don't have a text for it. Oh, no, I do. I'm sorry. I, I, I pulled pull two verses from Isaiah. So the last lesson is hope. Hope for a better future. For 2,000 years plus, we've been lighting the menorah on Chanukah. And as we light the menorah, we're reminded of the menorah that stood in the Holy Temple. And we're reminded that once again, one day we will have another temple and we will be lighting the menorah in the Holy Temple. And it's that hope that keeps us going. If at any point in Jewish history, we would have thought that it's over and there's no hope for the future, we, you and I, none of us would be here today. We would not be here today if our ancestors gave up hope. To be a Jew means that historically you fought to survive against all odds. And the reason why a person fights is because they believe in something. We know from Viktor Frankl, Logotherapy, the idea is that if you have something to live for, you will fight to live. If you have nothing to live for, you're going to give up. The fact that we fought for thousands of years to keep on going is because we've believed in something. And what do we believe in? A better future, a better time, not only for our people, but for the whole world, a time where there's no more darkness, but only light. And I want to conclude with two beautiful verses from Isaiah chapter 60. Look at these verses, so beautiful. Arise, shine for your light. Yeah, it's on the last, the last page of the, of the booklet. He says, arise, yeah, right there. Arise, shine for your light has dawned. The presence of God has shone upon you. And the next verse he says, Behold, look at this. Look how prophetic this is. I mean, he was a prophet, right? Darkness shall cover the earth and thick clouds the peoples. But But upon you, God will shine and God's presence be seen over you. Even when the earth is filled with darkness, even when thick clouds cover the people, in other words, even when the world seems to be blind to what's obvious and true, even in the darkest of times, God is with us. God's presence will be see, is seen over us. And indeed, may that light shine not only within us and throughout us, but really throughout the whole world, uh, ushering in a better time for us and for everyone, a time where there's no more war, no more loss of life, no more sorrow, and only happiness and joy. And let us say, Amen. <coughs> Mm-hmm. All right. It's yeah, a a cool. Pleasure. Those are the lessons, the eight lessons that I w- wish to share for Hanukkah. And uh, feel free to take these ideas and, uh, and share it around your Hanukkah celebrations. You have eight beautiful lessons that you can share.